The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. You're listening to The Murder in My Family, brought to you by Abject Entertainment. Be sure to check out some of the other great true crime podcasts from this network, including Missing Persons, Scene of the Crime, DNA ID, Three Men and a Mystery, Zodiac Speaking, and All Things Crime. All of these podcasts are available for you to binge on right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe where you're listening to this podcast so you don't miss an episode. The views and opinions expressed by guests on this podcast do not necessarily represent those of the podcast, its host, or sponsors. If you would like to discuss the murder in your family on this podcast, please be sure to visit themurderinmyfamily.com for more information. You can support this podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash the murder in my family. This episode may contain unsettling material or subject matter. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for this episode of The Murder of My Family. I'm your host, Mike Morford. In this episode, we'll be discussing the case of a 48-year-old Texas man who was beaten to death in the camp where he lived in on a piece of land that he loved due to its privacy. After a decade, his case remains unsolved. We'll dive into this case after some quick housekeeping. Independent podcasts like this one depend on word of mouth to bring in new listeners. So if you find that you enjoy the show, Please take a minute to rate and review it wherever you listen to your podcast, and be sure to introduce a friend to the show and invite them to listen. With your help, The Murder of My Family can continue to grow and reach a new audience. To learn more about the show or the cases we discuss, please visit themurderofmyfamily.com. You can also find us on Twitter with the handle at MurderMyFam, or by searching for The Murder of My Family podcast on Facebook. If you'd like to support this show through a Patreon donation, it's always appreciated. And you can do so by visiting patreon.com forward slash the murder of my family. Benefits of supporting the show on Patreon include early access to ad-free episodes of the show, plus bonus content not heard in regular episodes. Support may also include thank you cards, stickers, and more. If you prefer to, you can also support the show through a PayPal donation by visiting paypal.me forward slash the murder of my family. In each episode, I'll give shout-outs to any new supporters. In this episode, I'd like to thank Wendy Connell. And thank you to all the supporters that generously donate to help keep the show growing and improving. One last note. Please consider supporting any of the sponsors that you hear on The Murder of My Family, the way that those sponsors support the show. It's with our sponsor support that the show can go on and continue to provide a platform to share these stories with you in every episode. Thank you. And now on with the show. 
James Lynn Terry was born on April 9, 1962, in Cloverleaf, Texas, to Joyce Lane Parker and Anderson James Terry. A lifelong Texas resident, he was raised with his two brothers, David and Philip, and his sister, Sandra. After eighth grade, Terry dropped out of school in order to, quote, become a man, as family would later say. James, along with his brother David, started a tree trimming company called Tip Top Tree Service. And in the early 1980s, it was very successful. In 1983, Hurricane Alicia, a tropical storm, caused $3 billion worth of damage in the greater Houston area of Texas. And James's family remembers at the time around Hurricane Alicia was a time when Tip Top Tree Service was booming. Business was good. James loved to climb trees and he enjoyed his job, so the career he had chosen was perfect for him. James met a woman named Sherry while they were in their late teens or early 20s, and the two of them started a family together. But later, the pair separated, and in the late 1990s, James moved on to the property that his brother lived on, and this is where James lived for the rest of his life. It was secluded and quiet, just the way James liked it. In his free time, outside of climbing trees, James loved to draw and paint. He was very creative, and he even knew how to tattoo people. You could usually find James with his friends throwing darts, shooting pool, drinking beers at the local bar, or listening to classic rock, something he really enjoyed, with Boston and Ozzy Osbourne being among his favorites. People remember James, always laughing, telling jokes, and trying to make people laugh. But some people found James abrasive at times especially when he was drinking, and that occasionally caused friction. But overall, James was a well-liked guy and wanted to do his own thing. Just after 8 p.m. on Tuesday, October 5th, 2010, Harris County Police deputies arrived at the home of James Terry, located in the 200 block of Monmouth Drive in Channelview, Texas. His family hadn't heard from him in days, and it was unusual for the 48-year-old not to respond to his loved ones. So James's brother, Peter, and a neighbor that lived on the property actually broke into the camper that James lived in to check on him. When Peter pried the door open and went inside, he found his brother James in the bathroom, covered by a blanket, and it was clear that he was dead. James had suffered severe head trauma. Someone had beaten him to death, covered him with a blanket, and left the scene. The news was shocking. As I mentioned earlier, Sometimes people might have a run-in with James or a disagreement, but no one could think of anyone that wanted to murder him. There were no clear suspects at the time, and the police investigation didn't really seem to go anyplace, and it eventually went cold. Almost 11 years later, James's friends and family wanted to know who killed him. Looking back to the time when James was murdered, his neighbor, Randy Corley, told reporters about thieves that had been burglarizing homes in the neighborhood. And he warned local reporters that, quote, they better catch them before we do, and that's a fact. He was talking about the police catching these people that had been breaking into area homes. Could these break-ins have played a part in James's murder? That was one possibility. An October 2010 ABC News article mentions that there are four mobile homes on the property that James lived on, and that police found more evidence in a neighbor's home, but this was never expanded on or explained so it's not clear what they found there. And that report was pretty much the last media coverage about James and the circumstances of his murder. 
But James's family is taking it on themselves to keep his memory alive and to keep fighting for justice for him. As far as they can tell, a strong suspect is also one of the last people known to have seen James Terry alive. The man they suspect is named Jerry Allen Fane. Jerry had purchased a camper from James on the day that he is believed to have been murdered, and James's family believes that he and Jerry had some kind of argument over that transaction. It's not clear how closely police looked at this man, but he's never been charged in James's murder. In fact, no one has. But James's family has had their suspicions of Jerry for a long time, and as it turns out, he's no stranger to criminal activity. Just before 7 a.m. on February 5, 2014, 33-year-old April Cobb Gundiker was found dead in her bedroom by her 12-year-old daughter. It was the very day she was set to testify against her ex-boyfriend, Aaron Paul Reed, in a court case against him for assaulting her. But he was in jail at the time. A neighbor remembered that April had been arguing with someone through text, and their final message was, quote, I'm coming for you. But it was never specified who she had been texting with. But the man she was currently dating when she was killed was Jerry Allen Fane, who was 35 years old, and he was immediately a suspect in the murder. He had already been convicted of felony sexual assault of a child and burglary in the past. Jerry was arrested and charged with fatally strangling his girlfriend using a sweater. He stuffed the t-shirt into her mouth and left her dead clad in her underwear. Heartbreakingly, April's children not only have to deal with their mother being dead, but it was actually her twin daughter's birthday that day when she died. Jerry Fane pleaded guilty to April Cobb's murder in exchange for prosecutors reducing his charge from capital murder during a felony offense to first-degree murder, which allowed him to avoid the death penalty. Fane was sentenced to life in prison on January 27, 2017. In August 2017, Fane tried to submit a writ of habeas corpus, basically claiming a false imprisonment, but it was denied because it didn't comply with some of the Texas rules of appellate procedure. In May 2019, Fane tried again to get a federal writ of habeas corpus, but due to different laws, the statute of limitations for federal habeas corpus review expired on February 28, 2019, and he filed two months after that date. This appeal was denied in March 2020. Jerry Allen Fane is still in prison and won't be getting out anytime soon. But if Fane truly did kill James Terry, unless he talks, there may never be an answer for James's family. It's not known or clear if there's any kind of DNA evidence or anything like that in the case, something that would connect to Fane or any other suspect. And if Fane is guilty, perhaps his family takes some kind of comfort in knowing that he's behind bars and can't hurt anyone else, even if it's not for James Terry's murder. It's been over a decade since James Terry was found dead in the camper on the property that he loved, and it seems as if we're not any closer to finding out who killed him. Hopefully somehow that changes. If anyone out there has information about the murder of James Terry, please call Crime Stoppers at 713-222-TIPS. You can also leave a tip online by visiting crimestoppers.org. James Terry's daughter, Leona, sat down with me to discuss her father's tragic murder and her family's effort to get justice after so long. That conversation is coming up in just a moment. Susan Eads, Jody Loomis, Jessica Baggin, Christy Mirak, Gwen Miller. 
What do all these women have in common? They are all murder victims whose cases went cold for decades until they were finally solved thanks to a new crime-solving technique that is changing the game, forensic genealogy. But who were these women? Why did their homicide cases remain open and unsolved for so long? Who were their killers? And what was the link between each victim and her murderer? DNA ID sets out to answer these questions. My podcast looks at the original crime, the investigative work on the case, red herrings, potential suspects, and the evidence left behind by the killer. And it then examines how each case was solved by forensic genealogy and the connection that led to the fateful interaction between victim and murderer. In many cases, I speak to the detectives who cracked the case, and they give me insight into their methods, theories, and what went on behind the scenes. Join me every other Monday for a new episode. Be sure to subscribe to DNA ID wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss a single episode. Hey everyone, summer's in full swing and a lot of people want to get out and enjoy the sun. But for some of us, that's easier said than done. Because all too often, things that have been weighing on us keep us from doing everything that we want to do and living our best lives. But the good news is, there's help, and that help is BetterHelp. If there's something that's interfering with your happiness or preventing you from achieving your goals, then BetterHelp Online Counseling just might be the right solution for you. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can connect in a safe and private online environment. It's so convenient, and you can start communicating with a counselor in under 24 hours. This isn't self-help. It's professional counseling. Send a message to your counselor at any time. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions, all without having to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room. BetterHelp can assist you with so many things from sleep issues, stress, and family conflicts to help with relationships, anger issues, LGBT matters, and so much more. Anything you share is confidential, and while BetterHelp isn't a crisis line, it is convenient, professional, and affordable. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they're recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. I want you to start living a healthier life today. As a listener of the Murder My Family, you'll get 10% off your first month of BetterHelp by visiting betterhelp.com family. Join over 1 million people taking charge of their mental health. Once again, go to betterhelp, that's H-E-L-P dot family, and you'll save 10% on your first month of BetterHelp. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Hi, Leona, and thanks for coming on the Murder of My Family to discuss your father James's case with us. Hi, how are you doing? Good, and I'm happy to have you here, and I hope we can help spread the word that this case is still unsolved and hopefully get you some answers uh, that you've been waiting for. There's a lot here to unpack regarding your dad's case, and we'll definitely try and get into that. But before we get started, can you just tell us a little bit about your dad and maybe help us understand a little bit about him, what kind of person he was? Um, yeah, he was um, He was a very eccentric guy. He, um, he was very artsy. He was, you know, a, a really good, sweet, caring guy. But, you know, he had a wild side about him. But ultimately, you know, he was, he was still there for his family and he, he, he really cared a whole deal about people, but 
you know, like I said, he had a wild side about him. He was just a, a real good guy. And what do you miss most about him, do you think? I mean, I don't think you can pick anything in particular. I miss everything about him. It just not having I mean, that, that fatherly person there that a lot of us depend on and, and want to be able to turn to if we need them. Yes, sir. I miss everything. I mean, I, I don't have that that connection, that bond anymore. It, it, it's all gone. When your dad was killed in 2010, what was going on in his life as far as work, relationships, uh, any quarrels? Can you give us an idea of, of where what was going on at that time? At that time in my dad's life, you know, um, the backstory, my dad is a tree cutter. So that, that was his profession, you know, so he didn't really have a, a nine to five job to go check in. So mainly he was at home. He, he lived on this property in a camper trailer with, um, his brother had his own camper and then he had, there was like two other campers on this property, you know, uh, another friend and then this one that was for sale, um, he would go to the local bar down the road. He would frequent that often. He was a little bar hopper, but his main his main thing is he'd sit at home or sit over at his brother's house, and they'd sit there and drink beer and watch TV and just hang out. And that that's mainly what my dad's life consisted of. He was a homebody, or he, he was at the local bar, you know, drinking and hanging out, playing pool or picking up ladies, you know. But, you know, that's that's what my dad did. Or he was out cutting trees. He was the best tree climber, I swear. You know, he'd climb it real good and cut it down real fast. So it sounds like he's just a regular guy, either working or when he wasn't working, relaxing and just unwinding a little bit. Yes, sir, pretty much. Did he have any kind of enemies or any anything going on with anyone, uh, any run-ins with anyone at the time before he was killed I mean, that you were aware of? <clears throat> I see my dad, um, like I said, he had a wild side. Um, he could be angry at points, you know, so a lot of people would, you know, get in spits with my dad, you know, up at the bar, you know, drinking times, but he wasn't hated by everybody. He was loved by many, but you, if you get on his bad side, you, you could have problems, but no, I could not just pinpoint anybody and be like, oh, you know, he has a major problem with my dad or she has a major problem with my dad. It's just like your local neighborhood people, you know, you get in your quarrels and you move on about it. But no, not could I say, hey, yeah, like this person had it out for my dad or that person. Because no, I'm not going to lie, my dad, some would say he's a motherfucker, but he's just in the end, he was still a great guy. He was still a good guy. He was your friend. I mean, he was just your local little guy that likes to go to the bar and have a good time. Sure. And, and take us back to that day in October when your dad's body was found, 2010. Uh, he was he was found by your uncle, correct? Yes, sir. Um, okay, that day... Um, I had um, just gotten off of work. It was around like five o'clock. Um, I had went to my aunt's house at that point in 2010. That's kind of like my routine. I would 
get off of work and go there and, you know, visit with them and my cousin and stuff. Well, within the time, my one of my uncles, um, Uncle Robert, had showed up over there and um, they were um, asking me if, um, he was asking me if I had spoken to my father and I'm like, you know, no, I haven't talked to my dad in a while, you know, why was up? And he was like, well, your Uncle David, which is the brother that lived on the property with him, said that they hadn't been able to get in contact with him for like two or three days. And, you know, um, I didn't, my, you know, my dad didn't have a phone, you know, you had to call my Uncle David to get a hold of my dad. And, you know, if I'm getting word that my Uncle David can't find him. Um, then I wouldn't know how, how else to get a hold of him. Well, at that time, it, it's about six, and I'm already, um, you know, everybody there, nobody could figure out where he was at, and Uncle Robert saying, he was like, hey, well, we had heard that he had gotten a car and left about midnight with some lady headed out to Galveston. So this is, like, all happening at, like, six o'clock in the afternoon, you know, getting word with my aunt and my uncle and my cousin, this is what's being said. So, you know, in my head, everything's all right. You know, it's, it's kind of out of my dad's norm just to take off out at the blue, you know, and to head to Galveston, but we're getting word that, Hey, he's been spotted. <clears throat> so I go home and, um, about, I say eight, eight thirty at night, I'm getting a phone call from my uncle David. So I'm like, Oh, okay. I get, you know, like here's dad, you know, I figured it was my dad calling. Well, whenever I answered, it was my Uncle Robert, and um, <clears throat> I was like, he was like, hey, I need you to call your Uncle Kenny immediately, and I was like, well, have you, have you found dad? I mean, you know, where's my dad? And that's whenever he told me, he was like, I, I hate to break it to you, but he was like, brother's gone, and I need you to call your uncle immediately and tell him to come down to the property, which that's where my dad lived was. That's what we called it, the property. So that's pretty much how how it happened how it started and how it began like I immediately rushed down to the property and whenever I got there that's I mean the police and the um everybody everybody was already there I mean it was already taped off the crime scene unit was there and a a few family members was there it was clearly uh, a murder. It wasn't, your, I guess your uncle could tell right away and the police probably could tell right away that it was not like him accidentally passing away or anything like that. Right, right, right. Um, um, how, again, I mean, I guess how things had started about this, um, when my uncle had heard that my dad had taken off, he had, my uncle Robert, he had went down to the property, I'm assuming, and um, he had went to my dad's trailer and knocked, you know, to try to see if he was, you know, there. And, you know, his his front door was shut, which is kind of out of the norm because my dad usually even would sleep with his front door wide open, but the screen door closed <laughs> because in the area, you know, you can trust it at that, you know, we had thought you can trust the area. He had always just lived like that, even slept like that, you know? Well, um, when my uncle Robert had got there, the the front door was shut and it was locked and everything. So, 
you know, he, and, and it's a camper trailer, you know, the little travel trailer like thing. So my uncle Robert said he tried to look through the windows and the blinds and couldn't really see anything. So he, he basically forced his way into my dad's trailer because I mean, it's just weird to, for it to be locked up and everything. So upon forcing his way through the trailer, he had already seen signs of, I couldn't tell you word for word verbatim for what he had told me, but foul play and there was a lot of blood. So upon entry, he said he had seen that and went to go to the bathroom and like walk down the hall and he had opened the bathroom door because he had seen like the little blood trail on the, the, the couch and everything. And he had went to open the bathroom door and whenever he did, that's where he had seen my dad's body. And then he said he Im- immediately ran out. So, yeah, it was pretty much not no accident. It was a for-sure murder. Yeah. Not it passing have, away in the sleep. It, it must have been tough for first for him to discover your dad like that, but also for you to hear those details as well. It took about five years for him to tell me exactly, but yes. It was, it was tough speaking about it right now, but I got it out. But yeah, very tough. Can you tell, give us a little bit of uh, a sense of a couple things about the, the trailer and the property? Was this, I think you may have mentioned camper before, or it was reported as camper, but is this more of like a mobile home, like a, like a larger uh, trailer home that, that has like multiple rooms and stuff in it? No, sir. These are the ones that you would pull on the back of your truck and go camping in. These are camper trailers. So like a travel trailer. Okay. Um, yes, so, sir. So, and when you mentioned that there were multiple people living in these, including your uncle on the property, how far spread out were they? Okay. Like say, I mean, we got about an acre here, maybe half an acre. Don't let me make it that big. Um, there was one. Okay. There's, there's four campers on this. How my dad and Uncle David's are, they're kind of side by side, but in an L shape. And a couple of yards away is the empty one to the right of the property um, that was for sale and everything. And then to the left, off to the side, a couple of yards away on the other side was Randy's property, another tenant that lived on the property. And, so, and- I mean, they they weren't close, but my dad and David's were side by side in an L format, so they were pretty close. Were, were they close enough that someone would have heard or seen something uh, if if anyone had come on the property and attacked your your dad? Yes, for sure. I mean, they this and this is still a question that we always battle in our heads to this day. Like, how did David not hear anything? Like. How? Because, like, these campers, like, they would leave windows open at night, too. You know, they're the crank-open windows, and, you know, they they would be open. So, I mean, if it was loud <clears throat> and there was a lot of noise, how did David not hear? But we've got a theory to why he didn't hear anything all of my uncles, including my father on this property, they are al- alcoholics, n- nonetheless. So we're assuming he, David was 
in a drunken stupor. He did not hear anything because he was passed out on his couch. And slept through whatever happened. Yes. And, and do, do they think whatever happened to your dad um, happened while they were in, in their trailers? Yes. See, um, Randy, the tenant that lived off to the left of the property, around midnight, him and my dad were finishing off a six-pack that they had got. David was already in his trailer asleep. We're assuming he was already asleep at midnight. So um, my dad and Randy were drinking their beers. And as Randy said, they had just finished off the late show, which I believe Mr. Ed was playing. And um, Randy was tired. So he this is around like midnight or something. So he finished his beer and he said, my dad went to go ahead and lay down as well. And he went to his trailer and my dad lay down and that that was like it for the night. So the property should be quiet and nobody moving around at this point at midnight. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Had they ever had any problems with any people trespassing or coming on the property, giving them any kind of uh, trouble or anything in the past? Well, within this time, like I said, there was an empty trailer off to the right. Well, there was this guy that had been coming around by the name of Jerry that my dad had sold this camper trailer to. I mean, it was old beat up one. It wasn't, as I'm understanding, he didn't charge a whole lot of money. It was only like $100. I think Jerry still owed my dad 75 bucks on it. And um, <clears throat> earlier in that day, Jer- uh, my dad had gotten an altercation with the guy, Jerry, because I think Jerry was trying to take the camper off the property. And my dad was like, hold up, man. You still owe me like 75 bucks on this. So I'm thinking, you know, with that, being said that that's where the problem had started and that that's what you know that with that trailer it's a, so it's a possible motive basically possible yes sir okay and and we'll we'll definitely talk more a little bit more about jerry here um early on when the police were first investigating um did they have any leads to work with did they talk to you or your your, your uncles at all about what they thought had happened or anything along those lines? Oh, yes, yes, yes. I mean, they brought um, everybody that lived on the property in for questioning. Um, My uncle dad had um, found him. I mean, there was was really no real lead. They were just questioning locals. And, you know, there's a lot of hearsay. So they were just going off of, Every bit of hearsay, you know, this person saying, hey, I think this happened, or I think this person did that, you know, or that person did that. But really, there was no real definitive lead, nothing set. 
no strong evidence that that pointed to anyone. No, sir. No, no strong evidence, but there was a lot of um, things, evidence bags taken off the scene. But I wouldn't per se, I wouldn't say per se it was actual evidence from the crime. Sure. And I know they polygraphed some different people. What were the results of those uh, polygraphs? Nobody showed any signs of deception. Everybody, I think there was like six people in the very beginning um, questioned and, and everybody passed. There was no deception shown. So I guess in their minds, they felt that everyone that they talked to was cooperating and being truthful. To an extent, yeah, but the the people that we're dealing with and the the the, the type of area that we're talking about, um, a lot of drug usage. So, you know, you can only none of this is a, you can't use any of this in court because you know they're under the influence. So, they're only taking it by a grain of salt what people are saying because they're like, well, you know, they're high, so who knows what if what's true or not. Yeah, like it might affect the uh, the polygraph okay. examination. Right. Sure. So it was just it, it, butting heads against the wall the whole way through. Well, it eventually came to light that your dad's murder might be connected to the murder of a woman named April Gundacker. And her killer, Jerry Fain, I assume this is the same Jerry that bought the trailer from your dad? From your dad? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Um, yes, back in 2014, this uh, a friend of mine, this woman was um, viciously taken away from us, and um, Jerry Fain was charged and admitted guilt to murdering her. And within that time, he had given um, a confession, you know, just to an acquaintance of his, not not to the courts or anything like that. But there was a little bit of a, a type of um, confession, a hearsay confession in 2014 in regards to my dad with that case. So he, he basically uh, readily admitted to, to killing this woman, April, uh, and, and then also slipped into someone uh, that he had killed your, your father. Is that correct? Yes. Yes, sir. Um, but <laughs> with that case, there um they had given him a plea deal and he kind of had taken that plea deal so the hearsay confession that was going to be used in the trial was thrown out and he took the plea deal and he got a life sentence so that my dad's case was therefore again put back in cold case and all of that that we were going to use on that case was just pushed off to the side because he took that plea deal he is right now currently serving a life sentence with the possibility of parole in 30 years. And, and basically is one of those deals where, okay, if you confess to this one and, and go to jail for this one, we're not going to press it on, on this other case in, in your dad's case. Pretty much. Cause um, in my dad's case at this point, we're ultimately lacking a, a, a factual confession from Jerry himself. So, there was really nothing. So, yeah, basically, confess to this, we'll give you that, and boom. And that's what happened. 
Was there anything that you know that was definitely linking Jerry to your dad's murder? Any any uh, evidence or anything that connected him to the crime other than him uh, saying that he had done it? No, at this point in 2014 and all this time, there's, I mean, there's nothing linking Jerry, just like I said, hearsay. And then the fact about the, the confrontation with the whole trailer situation, that whole scenario there that nothing else though. No, no, sir. 2010, 14, all this time, nothing linking when you first reached out to me, it sounded like you didn't have a lot of hope that your dad's case would be solved after more than a decade and and that you were desperate for some fresh eyes to take a look at the case. But then you got some good news recently. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that news that you recently got? Yes, I can. Ooh, that's going to make me cry. Hold on. Um, about two weeks ago, I got a phone call from a detective saying that, um, I guess um, Jerry is finally confessed. I got it out. Okay. That he has confessed to the crime of um, murdering my dad. And um, I really don't know how much I'm allowed to speak on that right now. But we have a confession from Jerry Fain as of two weeks ago. And do you know if they plan to charge him uh, before the murder? Yes, sir. Um, I am taking it to trial. And I, 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 he asked me what I wanted to do, and I, I told him I want to push forward, and I, he needs to pay because um, this is two bodies now. This is April and my father. So he needs to definitely um, face, face, face the, the consequences of both crimes. Yeah, and although he's in jail technically for April's murder, if he's responsible uh, for your dad's murder, you want to see him held accountable and and sentenced for that as well, I'd I'd imagine. Yes, sir. Well, uh, he needs to pay. That's my opinion. He needs. My opinion is he needs an eye for an eye, but we can't do that, so... To your knowledge, has he shown any kind of remorse or uh, since he's been in prison? Oh, no. No. Also, he's a um, he's a registered sex offender. So the, the whole time of him being incarcerated, um, I had heard that um, he has been being viciously beaten and stuff like that. And poss- I mean, I don't know. He he's just not having a really good time. Let me just say that he's he's ready to face his maker, is what I'm assuming. Oh, he doesn't sound like a like a very good guy. That's for sure. He is not a good guy at all. And I know you can't talk too much about what's going on in these new developments, but based on what you've been told, how much. Um, how much further might there be in, in waiting or in, until it might go to trial? Is there is there sort of some light at the end of the, the tunnel here? There is definitely a light at the end of the tunnel, but I don't know the end, but I do know the beginning of the tunnel could possibly open within a month, but we're still trying to get 
everything together because, I mean, it starts in 2010 with my dad. It makes a stop in 2014 with April, and it's roaring its big, ugly face here in 2021. So it's just a lot that they're putting together. And like I say, I can't say too much about anything. I, I don't even know if I've said too much already, but like I said, only less than two weeks ago did I get word about this. And, you know, this has been a closed cold case for 11 years now. So I'm just trying to get the word out. And fortunately, me trying to get the word out, we've got word. So. I know this must have been a tough 11 years for you. And I, I hope that this new development uh, goes someplace and, and finally gives you some justice and some answers. And, and definitely keep us updated because I'd love to do a follow-up with you down the road. Uh, the hearing of the case is officially solved. Most definitely. I'd love to give a follow-up. I mean, I'd, <clears throat> this, this whole thing has been very arduous and painstakingly crazily driven me. I mean, I, I just can't even think of the words right now, but yes, hopefully it does. It has brought resolution already just from what I've heard, just hearing those words from the detective, this, this void. I mean, I'm never going to get my father back, but this emptiness, this, this, this hatred, I mean, there's anger still there, but this, this deep-seated hatred, this anger inside of me, is, it's been released. Yeah. It's kind of hard to explain, but it's not there. It's not something that you want to carry around with you, I'm sure, as as well. At all. Nothing at all. It's nothing you want to go to sleep with on your mind. And that's something I did for 11 years. You don't ever not think about it. You try not to. You do everything that you can to not think about it, but it's always in the back of your mind. Well, you've been waiting so long for answers and and going through that, that pain and carrying that weight that you just mentioned. If there's someone out there listening to you that maybe has a similar scenario that they're going through right now and they've been waiting for justice uh, and they're carrying that, that burden, what advice would you have for them? Don't give up hope. I pretty much did, and here we are. I say keep fighting and don't lose hope in yourself. Cause that's all you got and to hold on to. Yeah. And I think, I think we all know too, that we're seeing, you know, you've gotten some news after a long time. We're seeing cases being solved all the time that were cold cases from 20, 30 years ago. So I think there's definitely hope for anyone out there that's been waiting for answers or waiting for justice. Uh, it might take a while, but if, if, if you're, if you hold out hope, you, you might get rewarded with some, um, uh, some positive news at some point. Yeah, you might. There, you might. If there's hope, there's there's a chance, right? Yeah, and and I guess at, looking back now, when people remember your dad or, or talk about your dad, what do you want them to remember about him? What's your, your the biggest thing that you want them to to think of when they think of your dad? Just his 
happy free spirit, you know, that that I want them to remember how, how caring he was and how good of a tree climber he was and he'd do anything to make you laugh and smile and he'd get the shirt off his back to you if you needed it, if, if he could, if it was within his means, just I want people to remember him as a happy, good, sweet guy he was. I mean, I don't, I don't know the words to choose, but I mean, just want them to remember him the way he was. Well, again, I, I hope that these new uh, developments are, are going to pay dividends and and lead to charges and uh, that uh, someone will be held accountable after all this time. Uh, I think you deserve that justice, and and hopefully we'll be hearing from you that, that it's officially solved. Oh, most definitely, for sure. You will definitely be hearing from me. Um, I speak to the detective. Um, I try to at least once a week now, twice a week, steadily keep it rolling, but I will definitely keep you, keep in touch with you about this case and we'll go ahead and do the follow-up once I, I guess the case is already closed and done. Yeah. And, and I hopefully that lifts whatever weight you're still carrying from all of this uh, off your shoulders. I hope so too. And, you know, my, my family, um, they, most of them want to know why. And, you know, I don't think we'll ever definitively know why. But I, I kind of, I do too, but, you know, we'll, we'll never fully know why. We'll never know the mind of a psychopath. Yeah. I think that's, that's one thing a lot of people, uh, they hope that, by finding out who did this kind of thing or seeing someone arrested, I think a lot of times people hope or think that they're going to get some kind of answer as to the why, but often that, that doesn't come. And and I think that's a little bit of a letdown, but you have to take a, um, some, some, uh, uh, something good away from the actual answers when you get them, even if they're not all the answers you're looking for. Right. Well, I, I want to thank you, Leona, for coming on and walking us through your dad's case. And again, we're rooting for you to get some, some good news going forward. I thank you again for allowing me the time to put his story out there and to get his name heard and to let people know. I mean, there's still evil in this world and, you know, we just got to try our best to, I don't know. We can't, we can't stop the evil, but we got to help bring the evil to justice. Little steps. Little steps. You're right. Thank you once again for joining me for this episode of the murder of my family. I'd like to thank Sonny Landon for writing and research assistance in this episode. As we wrap up, I'd like to play a preview for a true crime podcast. It's called Murder Bucket. Be sure to give it a listen. We'll be back here soon with an all-new episode of The Murder of My Family, and I hope you'll join me for it. But before you go, remember that every murder victim means something to somebody. Have you ever seen on the news where a police department goes back through old files to reinvestigate a missing persons case? 
or a homicide to see if they can find what happened or who did it? Did you ever watch the show called Unsolved Mysteries with the original host Robert Stack and get so intrigued that you wanted to know more? Well, Murder Bucket Podcast has you covered. We are currently in a 30-plus episode series called The Cold Case Road Trip. We travel to all 50 states, D.C., and five inhabited territories. Every Tuesday, I cover a cold case from two locations. You can listen to Murder Bucket wherever you get podcasts, such as Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Audible, Amazon Music, iHeartRadio, and more. We also have a merch store. Follow the link on linktr.ee slash murderbucket and check it out. There might be something there that catches your eye. And finally, follow us on Twitter at The Murder Bucket, Facebook at Bucket Murd, and Instagram at Murd Bucket.